Well, I hope you enjoyed driving this morning, Easter morning, a beautiful day to go out looking at the, the flowers and take some time just to just to imagine and think through what happened this morning on, on Easter. I, on spring mornings like this, it, it reminds me of when I finished school. Um, I, I was one of those uh, program tracks where it was 20 years of school uh, from you know, age five, 25, I finish, and uh, 20 years, uh, every year, some semester in, semester out, you got your exams, your papers, your tests, and, and life is um, dictated by your school schedule. And I'll never forget that spring morning when I did my last paper, and I, I, I did the last edit, I printed it out. And I was going to an exam, and when I placed that paper down, and I did that test, and I walked out of that room and saw that spring, sunshine, flowers, trees, and they never looked prettier. <laughs> I had such a smile on a face. I think I actually put in the hallelujah course on, on my uh, car, and I started singing as loud as I could. Uh, this was such a moment of relief that I had. I think that as we look at was accomplished on Easter, that is just a taste of the relief that is expressed when we learn about what Jesus did on Easter morning. And I think sometimes we we hear the stories, we're familiar, maybe you've kind of run through it in your own brain of, you know, okay, Friday on the cross, he's put it into the tomb, the darkness, and then uh, then Sunday morning, bright and early, the ladies come with the ointment that stones rolled away and, and, and angels there saying he's risen indeed. And we know all that history, but we're not entirely sure of the relief for us personally. Yeah, it was good for Christianity, certainly great for Christ, but how is that really good for me? Where is that sense of relief. I think it's kind of sad sometimes we can understand that relief of finishing a paper and finishing school much better than we can understand the relief of the resurrection. So one of my goals is in sharing with you scripture is to help you understand and appreciate the relief that is there because of the resurrection. And so to accomplish this goal, I, I think we're just going to stick with the same text we've been doing. I know we're going to do that. We're going to go to Galatians chapter 4, verse 1 through 7. This is where we find ourselves as we're studying the book. But we find ourselves in a very appropriate spot in, in this book for this day, uh, in Easter. And so I, I don't think we should deviate. Let's just go right to Galatians 4, uh, just in way of review for those who haven't been here to catch you up. Uh, the book, Galatians, was written by Paul, written to the churches, believers in this region. Uh, they are, for the most part, Gentiles, non-Jews, who come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, growing uh, in the grace of God. But Jews come from Jerusalem, and they understand there's some differences here. And these Jews start teaching different things and saying stuff like, you know, Jesus is a great way to get started. Forgiveness is a great way to get started. But now that you know this, let's really get right with God by getting, uh, getting yourselves to be Jews. Let's, let's go through the circumcision. Let's go and, and understand the law. Let's apply the dietary rules. And, and this grace started you, but let's complete it now in being a Jew. And so that's what they're teaching. And so doing, they're starting to bring divisions into the church. In fact, Paul tells us that Peter himself, you know, one of the key guys... 
He's coming in and sees these guys from Jerusalem come in and he starts acting differently. He used to hang out with the Gentiles. Now that the Jews are here, he understands that's not such a good thing to do. They don't look at this favorably. So I'm going to stop hanging out with the Gentiles and start eating with the Jews. And now there's second class citizens in the church. And that is completely wrong. It is undermining the church itself. And now folks are understanding, if I want to get right with God, if I really want to be getting right with God, it's, i got to do all this extra stuff. And Paul comes out in probably one of the most aggressive letters in the book of Galatians and attacks this because it is hitting the heart of the church. I mean, usually somewhere in Galatians you see things like, I thank God for you. <laughs> you don't see that. He says, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? I mean, just ruthless in his writing because there is a great problem, all right? It's the problem of adding to Jesus Christ and it's the problem of creating second-class citizens in the church. So, with that thought in mind, in Galatians 3, he's talking about the law, how law is not meant to save us, it's meant to condemn us, that we are holding on to the promises of God that he first gave Abraham, now given to us through Jesus Christ. We're going to hold on to that. And let's talk about some of the benefits of what that means. So that's where we find ourselves in Galatians chapter 4, verse 1 through 7. In honor of this being God's word, let's, let's stand as we read this together. As I read aloud to you. Galatians 4. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. And the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You may be seated. In chapter 3, he gave three analogies of the law. He said the law is like a, a prison warden. He's keeping you in prison until the gospel comes. And then he says in chapter 3, the law is like a... Uh, a tutor, if you will. We don't have quite the same uh, metaphor in English as they did in, in the Greek and Roman period of that, that one who is a guardian over you as a child to teach you your manners. And then here he says the law is like that, that guardian who is the one watching over your finances and everything, your resources, until you come to age. In chapter 4, he brings this illustration of the, the Greek or the Roman son who is, uh, whose father is a great landowner, has all the, the, the privileges of it, wealthy. But the son, because he's a minor, is as if he's a slave. He doesn't, he doesn't have any of those perks. He doesn't have the Lexus in his car waiting for, and the garage waiting for him. He's, he's just, maybe has a bicycle, you know, just like everyone else. And, and so he's under this tutelage until he comes to age. And so when he becomes an adult, then there's the benefits that come with it. I think maybe the closest thing we might have to something like that is getting our driver's license. You know, we, 
uh, when we hit that, that age. And I remember being 16, I had that driver's permit, and I had the guardian there watching me, my parents there over me, uh, making sure that I was doing things right, and scolding me, and, and everything else, you know. Uh, but then when I got that age, and I passed the test, I got that license, and now there's new freedoms given to me. And I still remember the first time I drove the car by myself, uh, going from uh, my house, North Raleigh, to Sanderson High School, and a 1973 LTD Ford, the thing was huge. I mean, it was as big as the Suburban. Uh, same length, same width, just not as high. So I'm going down Falls News Road, and they added three lanes, not by adding asphalt. They just put another line down, you know. Uh, we made two. Okay, we got three. And I'm in this huge car. And it's like I could just touch the car next to me. I'm just, I'm just scared to death, you know. But I was having so much fun. It's nighttime. and going all these other high school students around going to the football game. And I'm like, this is crazy. But I'm legal. I'm legal. And I'm not turning that card back in. And, you know, I'm, I'm not going to go back to mom and dad and say, you know, that was just a little bit too scary. Let me, can I have my bicycle back? You know, we don't, we don't go back. And that's, Paul is, is bringing this thing that, okay, you've reached adulthood spiritually now. It's called the grace of Christ. You don't go back to the law. You don't go back to these things. It is not a, an upgrade to go to the law. It's not an upgrade to say that you have to be circumcised. Alright? It's not an upgrade to say that you have to be a member of a church. It's not an upgrade to say that you have to be charitable. That's not an upgrade to say that you have to do these things in order for God to approve of you. Alright? That's not how that works. So, how does this work? Well, let's keep on going here in verse 2, he says he's under gardens, managed until the day set by his father. In verse 3, in the same way also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. All right, verses 1 through 3 is a description of life before Christ. Life before Christ. Uh, we're going to have a bab- some baptisms here in just a little bit. And one of the things that I've challenged them to share with you is describe a little bit of your life before you came to know Christ. Every believer ought to be able... To look back to your life and say, I know what life was like before Christ. Even if it's to say, I had a, I had a fear of death. I had a fear of the things of God. Just to, be, just to have some description. So what we've got in verses 1 through 3 is a description of what life is like before Christ. Notice verse 3. In the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, I want you to notice your bulletin. You, you may have noticed this as you're coming in. I mean, most churches, you've got like Easter lilies or uh, some pretty scene, maybe of a tomb uh, on your front of the bulletin. But no, we here at Green Pines, we have babies shackled uh, on our bulletin. <laughs> and you're thinking, Pastor, what's wrong with you? All right? Uh, we, I can't tell you how close we were putting it on the business card, and, but figured that would creep out folks. All right? Um, so we had... We have to explain that, all right? Why, why is there a shackled baby in the front of your, your bulletin? Well, it comes down to verse 3. To understand that when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. This idea of elementary principles, the rudimentary uh, uh, parts of how this world works. And what Paul is bringing out is that this is a spiritual thing, spiritual forces that when we are born, we are subjected and subject to, we are enslaved to the way this world works. We have desires just like everyone else. Alright? Um, one of the songs I listen to talks about how, uh, you know, if, if folks try to be a rebel and, and try to wear crazy clothing and, and, and do all this, what we call bizarre behavior, but everyone else is doing that. 
So how is that really being a rebel? If you're just doing like everyone else, whether it's, you know, uh, goth or being preppy, you know, <laughs> being a rebel by being preppy, whatever, whatever way you go, how is that really being different? And he, what he's saying is that we're all enslaved to rudimentary forces of this world's working, the spiritual forces. I, children are selfish. And in a lot of ways you could say they're enslaved to their own self. They're enslaved to, to having a world revolving around themselves. And, and Satan, let me be honest with you, Satan is very happy for you to go that way. He's, he's, just, he's pleased. If you go down the way of saying life is all about what I want, all about me, you are enslaved to that idea. And the problem with that is that it doesn't really satisfy. You have to keep doing the same things over and over and over and over again. Why is it that some folks feel like they have to get drunk every weekend because last week didn't do it for them? I gotta do it again. I gotta do it again. I gotta do it again until the point where somewhere down the road they start realizing, you know, I can't stop. And now I don't, now I want to stop. And they can't. And, and so that's just one course. There's so many courses that we pick and choose. We're enslaved to this. Colossians 2.15 says it this way. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And Jesus does that in the resurrection. Colossians 2.20, if with Christ you died to the elementary spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? I get this. Paul is saying this. If you leave the grace of Christ and understand that you come to God by grace and you start going to the Ten Commandments, you start going to the Jewish laws, he says, that's just like being subject to the forces of this world. You might as well just bow down to some idol because God isn't your Lord anymore. God becomes your servant. Because you think, if I do all these things and I follow the Ten Commandments, God is obligated to me now. And when bad things happen, we freak out and say, God, you weren't supposed to do that to me. Because I do all these good things. And so Paul is is associating going back to following the rules for your hope and associating that with you're just following the course of this world because everybody does that. They have different statues and they have different methods, but they're all doing the same thing. Now, verse 4. I think verse 4 and 5, what you got here is Christ coming. And every believer's life, there's a moment in time when Christ broke in through their brain, through their heart, through, through their lives and realized their need for Christ. And they surrendered. They said, Christ, I need you. You're greater than me. I need you. I need forgiveness. So verses 4 and 5 is a description of Christ coming into history, into the world. Notice verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come. That's an intriguing phrase, isn't it? Fullness of time. How do you know when time's full? Well, I think that you have to be over time to know when that happens. God gets to say when time is full. And I, I just want to present to you that you being here right now, it could very well be... That God, in describing your life, is saying, your time is full. The time is full for you to hear the word of Galatians. And in the fullness of time, he brought you to this point, this time, to hear what God is saying to you through Galatians. And so, you can look back at this and say, yeah, okay, fullness of time. You had the Pax Romana. Uh, where Jesus comes into the scene where there's this great peace, stability because of force. 
uh, not because of any goodwill, but just because of military force. You've got the roads going on, all uh, leading to Rome. So there's traveling like there's uh, never been done before. The security uh, of the Roman forces. You've got the Greek language coming in, very, uh, very specific language that is just suitable for the New Testament, that everybody is having to learn Greek. And, and so you've got this ability to communicate. And so you can look back and see all these little details that in the fullness of time, Jesus Christ comes and is able to spread the gospel. But not only that, it's also the effect of immorality or the effect of the law. The effect of the law in these people's lives, they realize they need a Savior. Listen, when you come to understand that you cannot accomplish the Ten Commandments, and your own efforts to accomplish the Ten Commandments are not contributing anything to God where God says, I want you with me. When you get to understand that, then you're understanding the fullness of time and the need of the gospel in your life. So that's what's going on. That's what's going on in history. And so in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. Notice how that's phrased. God sent forth His Son. There's something implied. It doesn't say that Jesus came to be. It doesn't say that, that, that Jesus was just born. That would imply that there was some time that Jesus didn't exist. But when it says God sent forth His sons, what's implied? That before Mary was born, Jesus was. That's why in John chapter 8, Jesus is really freaking out some of the people. Because He's talking about Abraham like He knows him. And they say, hey, Jesus, you're not even 50. How do you know... About Abraham. And Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. What does that mean? Well, let's go even further back. When, when Adam and Eve are sitting there and they're hanging out, Jesus is saying, before Adam and Eve, I am. That's why John 1 1 starts it this way. In the beginning was. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? How can there be a was, a past tense in the beginning? In the beginning was the Word, referring to Jesus. And the Word was God, and the Word is God. Jesus has always been. And so when it says He sent forth His Son, it is the understanding that Jesus has always been. is not just a human. He is God, and He's coming as a man. And that's what you get here in the next part. Born of a woman. Now, if someone would say to me, you know what? Do you have a problem with a man being a God? Yeah, I have a problem with a man being God. But do you have a problem with God being a man? No. Why? Because if he's God, he can do whatever he wants. He can do what he wants. And that is not a problem for God to become a man. It is a problem for man to be a God. But it's not a problem for God to be a man. And so the Bible says he sent forth his son, born of a woman. Then notice, born under the law. He came as a Jew. Okay. So Jesus said, I've come not to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. What you've got here is God becoming a man, born of a woman, and then living perfectly. Living the life we all know we should have lived. It's amazing to me how, even folks who are not familiar with the Ten Commandments, there is an understanding and a sense of how we ought to live. Everybody has an ought to live. There are folks that, you know, I talk to and, and they say, well, you know, I just don't want to go to church because there's all those hypocrites there. I say, you know, you're right. You are, but you know, does that keep you from going to the football game? I mean, there's probably hypocrites there too. Uh, but here, here's the, the thought, is that everybody has their own law. Okay? 
And, and here's what that person will say to me. Well, at least I'm not like those church people who are presenting something that they're not. I've got my own law. I've got my code of ethics that I am who I am. And that's going to be the law. But you know what? They even break that. When you make up your own law, you still break them. Everybody has a sense of who they ought to be. And listen, what I just want you to understand is Jesus lived the life you should have lived. He was born under the law. When, the, when Jesus says the greatest thing is to love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind, Jesus did that. When he says the second law is unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. He did that. He did that. Now verse 5. Why did he do that? Why did God the Father send forth God the Son to be born of a woman, to be born under law, which the law is a reflection of him, Verse 5, in order to redeem those who are under the law. Now, verse 5 is going to tell us two purposes of why this came to be. All right? So this is, uh, verses 5 through 7 is the description of life after Christ. Listen, every believer, when coming to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, there's going to be effects. There are going to, there's going to be impact. There's going to be results, changes made. Verses 5 through 7 tells us two very significant impacts that are made uh, when Christ came. First, to redeem those who are under the law. Now, what does this mean, redeem? Redeem literally means to be purchased back with a price. Now, what are we being bought from? What are we being redeemed from? Galatians 3.13 tells us, just a little bit in front of us, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. So when you see that little baby with shackles, you know that baby is headed for a curse. Because within that baby's life is a tendency to live life not for God, but for themselves. Okay? And so consequently, it's going to feel the effects of, of that curse. It's going to feel the effects physically of disease and sickness. Even sometimes, you know, babies at a young age. Uh, it's going to feel the effects of that relationally with other people and the isolation and, and the struggle to get past the isolation. It's going to feel the, the curse. So, Christ redeems us from the curse of law. How do you do it? By becoming a curse for us. For it's written, curse is everyone who's hanged on a tree. Christ is redeeming us from the curse that God gave to us because we rebelled against God. Uh, and one of the trips I, I made to Belarus um, visited a site in Minsk where it really hit home. They used to be a very large population uh, in, in Minsk. Um, in fact... In 1941, Minsk had a population of around 240,000 people. 40% of them were Jews. Three years later, 50,000 inhabitants remained. 240,000, three years later, 50,000. Very few Jews survived. Most of them were temporarily housed in one of the largest Nazi-run ghettos in World War II. Many of them were killed within its walls. In 1942, in one area of this ghetto, you'll see a picture of a, a large depression, a pit. 5,000 Jews were lined up and sent into this pit, thrown into this pit to be killed. Shot or thrown alive into this pit. So, if you were to go there this day, you would see this statue 
someone made. At the bottom of this pit is a, a marble uh, monument, one of the first ones that Russia ever made. Um, but this, these statues grab your attention. Because it showed in just a visually graphic way the despair of these Jews stripped of their clothing, children in hand, some of them, and they all knew where they were going. There's just such an extreme sadness, even a loneliness that you see in the despair of this statue. In, in the back, there's a, a fella playing a violin, just trying to live life to the end with music. They were bound for this pit because of the law, a bad law, to eliminate Jews. I want you to understand that what we are in, according to the curse of the law, is that we are, in an essence, waiting in line, and we're trying to live life as we're in this line. Some of us are playing music, some of us are going to work, some of us have our kids, but we're all in a line, and there's one end to this line, and it is to be judged and condemned for the sin of our life. And it's just a matter of time before our place in line hits the pit. But here's here's what Jesus does. Jesus says, I'm above that law. I'm above that law. That law is a good law, but it's going to destroy you and annihilate you. And I'm holy and have to obtain that law, but I love you too. So, Jared... Get out of line and let me get in line for you. And he steps in line for you. So when you go to the cross, Jesus is doing it and he dies the death you should have died. To redeem those who were under the law. Now, why is it important that he's God and why is it important that he's man? He had to be born of a woman to take my place. He had to represent me. But he had to be God. He had to be sent from God. He had to be internal because he was about to take my sin. Now, I'm going to assure you, you don't know me, but I'm going to let you know it is filled with sin. If I was to enumerate my own life, it would fill this room with sin. And I'm looking at you and I'm thinking, you know what? Don't laugh because I think you're going to do the same thing. And when we multiply that times everybody here, those who will trust in Jesus as their saving Lord across the history, whose salvation has been dependent on this cross, the question is, can Jesus really handle my sin? And I'm going to tell you, if he's man alone, he cannot. But if he is God, the question then becomes, is his righteousness 
greater than my sin. If we have our sin and list it out, it may fill the ocean, but it's still finite. It still has an end to it. And I'm going to tell you that Jesus, because He is God, is infinite. His righteousness is eternal. So as great as our sin may be, it's still not greater than Jesus Christ. And so here's what Here's what the big deal is about resurrection. When Jesus does that, when he stands in line for me, how do I know that it was enough? That somebody's not going to grab me and say, you know what, that was, that was really valiant of the guy. But, it, yeah, you're in line again. <laughs> how, how do I know I'm not going to be drugged back in line? How do I know that his death was enough? Well, let's say he does that. Dies on the cross. Pays the penalty of, of sin, which is death. Here's, here's how we know. Does he stay dead? Here's the thing. When Mary and the ladies come up and the tombs, stones rolled away, soldiers are not to be seen, the angels are saying, he's not here. He's risen just like he said. Go tell the other disciples what is the sense of relief? Death is not greater than Jesus. And you think, well, that's really great for Jesus, but what is it for me? Here it is for me. My sin is not greater than Jesus. He provides for it. And if I feel any relief because my school is ending, listen, it is paling in comparison to the fact that my sin is covered for, I have been bought back. And listen, if, it, if the verse stopped there, that is enough for us to eternally thank God for but go back to the Bible. I didn't finish the text. Why did God send forth His Son to be born of a woman, born of the law? So that we might receive adoption as sons. <laughs> sons, they were the legal heirs. It, it's good to be a son in that day and time. Because they're the ones that were getting everything. So He says, you're not just forgiven. You're not just an ex-slave, alright? You are now a son. And the, the, the most notorious one of that day and time would have been Caesar Augustus being adopted as Octavius by Julius Caesar. He was the, the great nephew of Julius Caesar. He would have been on the streets with his mom and, and really didn't have much of a future until he brought him in, Julius Caesar did, and then named him Aaron and he became emperor, alright? So that would have been the most notorious one in that day and time, still is fairly notorious, so Jesus is saying, you know what? You become an heir not of an emperor. You become an heir of the Creator. You become an heir of God in Christ Jesus. So, verse 6. Because your sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. It's the Aramaic for a personal terminology between, it's not just, oh, Father, it's, it's, it's Dad. Dad. Now listen, the Spirit of God is that which makes it real in our life. It's one thing to know that Jesus rose again in history. But it's another thing to know it in your heart. How does it happen? It happens by the Spirit of God speaking to your heart. That God gives you His Spirit. Now listen, before we ever cry, Daddy, by the Spirit of God, God called you Son. 
We are just reciprocating. As much as I may cry out, Dad! 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 Voicing up to God the Father before that ever happened, God the Father said to me, Son! 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 And He had to say, Son! 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 Before I could ever say, Dad! 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 You know, have you ever had someone that wanted to be your friend? And you didn't? It's like, okay... That's not the relationship here. That's not the relationship. God initiates to us. He starts the ball rolling. And before we ever cry, Abba, Father, He calls us Son. And so, be, notice, that's why that verse says, and because you're sons, therefore, the Spirit of God comes into your life. God sends His Holy Spirit, this very Spirit of Christ, to make it real in our life. Listen, if the Spirit of God isn't making it real, then it's not real. Alright? It's just theoretical. But if the Spirit of God is in our life, then salvation is real. Resurrection is real. It's just maybe interesting things that may have formed some part of you or some inspiring story. But when the Spirit of God gets in your life and becomes one with you, then there's change in your life. So, verse 7. You're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So Paul says, Gentiles, don't believe the lie. God is not much impressed because you've been circumcised. God is not much impressed because of your dietary laws. God is not much impressed with the things that you trust in to think that maybe God will hear you. You can't impress God. I mean, really? How do you impress God? <laughs> That's kind of shooting for it, isn't it? You can't impress Him. So God says, you know what? I'm going to provide it for you. We don't offer up spiritual things to God. God gives us His Spirit. So it's not like I'm, oh, I'm going to read my Bible today and, and now I'm going to be really spiritual and, and God's going to be really pleased with me because I read my Bible because I went to church for Easter. I mean, isn't, God, you know, aren't you pleased with that? Listen, what makes you think that God is pleased with that? You're kind of calling Him a little short on that deal. You don't bring anything to the table. God brings everything to the table. He gives you His Spirit. I think John Wesley was capturing in his song, or Charles Wesley in the song, And Can It Be? He left his father's throne above so free, so infinite his grace. Emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free. For oh my God, it found out me. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Listen, I'm glad you're here for Easter. I'm glad you're here for Resurrection Sunday. But I pray that the resurrection spirit is in your life. And there's only one way to do that. It's is by coming to God and saying, you know what? You're not impressed with me. I, got, I get that now. I, but I really need a Savior. I, need, I understand I'm in line. And all I'm doing is just occupying my time until my time in line comes. And I really don't want to do that anymore. God, will you forgive me? Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God.
Blessed are those who have confessed their sins. He is faithful and just to forgive you of sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. It is by admitting your need. I've, I've been calling you guys a bunch of names. Losers and things like that. And I've been called on that a little bit. But here's the beautiful thing. Until you're a loser, you never can be called a son. Until you understand your need. But as soon as you do, and you, you say, God, by faith, I want to make you my Lord and Savior. He declares you clean. He declares you right. He declares you a son. And he sends his spirit to you. And salvation is not just that moment in time, but is the changing of your life to know God and to be like him. It is the Spirit of God that walks with you and talks with you. It is the fact that you're not waiting in line anymore because there is now no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus. It is now that you're living life with God. Do you want to do that? You sense God calling your heart to do that? He's calling you. Will you follow? Will you listen? Don't step up in pride and bow up at him. Listen to him. Come to him. I'm going to pray. And there's nothing magic in this prayer. It's the heart of this prayer that matters, is that you come to Christ in humility. But you do need to believe certain things. Jesus died for you and rose again. That he's going to be your Lord and King. And that he's going to be the one walking with you by his spirit. Will you trust in that? This prayer is going to be an expression of that. If this is something you've never done, I'm going to invite you to pray with me. Make it real in your heart and life. I'd love for you to let me know. I want to pray for you and pray with you and help you. Because this is just the beginning. It's not the final thing. It's just just the start. We're going to have some, after we sing, who have done this. Seven individuals who have done this. And they're going to be demonstrating it before you. Saying, I'm not ashamed. They're going to go down on the water, representing them their life before Christ. And Jesus dying, they die. They come up out of the water, it's a picture of resurrection, just like Jesus rose again. Then they've risen again, with a new spirit, a new way of living. And they're going to tell you they're not ashamed of Jesus. That Jesus is doing a work in their life. I invite you to be one of them. You could do that. But it starts by talking to God. Will you talk to God with me? Let's pray.